you're here this morning, you're a Christian, I just want to remind you, God loves you. Uh, the love of God is not something that you only experience when you come to know Christ for the first time. It's not something you only experience when you are saved. It is the reality in which you live in as a Christian. It's something that you just constantly remind yourself that you know the love of God because you have been called out of your sin and into this newness of life empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a life that's glorifying to your heavenly Father in the name of Jesus Christ. It's the reality in which you find yourself hoping in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. It's the remembrance of Christ dying on the cross for this newness of life in which you live. The love of God is foundational to the gospel. It's foundational to the church. It's the core of our faith. We know that any love that you and I have for God only comes first through his gracious loving us first. And we know that anyone who truly loves God and has truly been loved by God will make it to the return of Jesus. Will get to stand before the throne of God in eternity because of the person and work of Jesus. What we sang about earlier, nothing but the blood is the reason we stand before the throne. But just as much as we live in the reality that God's love is core to our faith, we also live in the reality that, as Christians, we have to fight to remain in that love. There is a fight that Christians must have, not with one another, not with God, but against the threats that will be thrown at us individually and corporately, seeking to pull us away from the love of God. Those threats could be anything from being envious of the prosperity of the wicked, could be false teaching, could be a love of money, a fear of man, and so much more. But in the letter that Jude is writing to the church, he's actually addressing one threat that has come into the church and is seeking to pull them away from the love of God, and that threat being false teaching. False teaching had crept into the church, and so... Jude tells them you need to contend for the faith because there is a threat facing your church that is seeking to strip you away from the love of God. Don't let those who have crept in continue to pervert the gospel. And as he gets to the end of his brief letter, he tells the church, if you're going to make it to stand before God at the end, keep yourselves in the love of God knowing that the love of God is going to keep you. Let's see this from Jude, verses 20 to 25. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Not to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time, 
and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Two points this morning. Keep yourselves in the love of God. God's love will keep you. Keep yourselves in the love of God. God's love will keep you. Those are our two points this morning. Keep yourselves in the love of God. We see this in the first few verses. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, Holy Spirit, keeping yourselves in the, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Keep yourselves in the love of God. This is the emphasis of what Jude is saying to this church. We could actually restructure the sentence like this to help us better understand exactly what Jude is saying. But you, beloved, keep yourselves in the love of God as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ by building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Spirit. And let me clarify, this is a collective call. This is a group assignment. This is a community project. Jude's telling the church, keep each other in the love of God. He's pushing them to realize that they have a responsibility to one another to make sure that they each make it to the end, to see that they each make it to stand before the throne of God for eternity. He's saying, contend for the faith by watching each other's backs. Don't leave each other out to dry. Now, granted, there is some individual responsibility to fight to keep yourself in the love of God. You, you can't seek to keep others in the love of God only to neglect yourself being in the love of God. I can't be on a, on a sports team and neglect to practice or study the playbook or try to strengthen my abilities and hope to see us win at the end of the game. No, I, I have to put in my individual effort, but I also need to come and support my teammates around me. I have to be committed to the team by growing myself as well. And so this is the same in the church. It is a community project. And Jude is not the only one in Scripture to call Christians to this. He echoes the same charge of Jesus that we read about in John 15 where Jesus says, Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So we see this continuing to, to press on to stay in the love of God. But he's also echoing David from Psalm 103. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Fear being keeping his commandments. And righteousness to children's children. To those who keep his commandment, his covenant, and remember to do his commandments. So again, we see the psalmist saying, keep in the love of God by following in what God has commanded us to do. To keep in the love of God is to obey the word of God. Now, does this mean that God's love is dependent on your obedience? No. God's love does not depend on you being obedient. A Christian's obedience to God will evidence the legitimacy of their claim to be in God's love to begin with. Obedience is not maintaining a list of do's and don'ts. This is where some people begin to deceive themselves into thinking that they're doing what's right in God's eyes because they have kept, quote, the letter of the law. They've done exactly what the word has said, but they really don't uphold the principle behind the word. Obedience is a way of life. Obedience is living out the principle behind the command. 
not just obeying the command itself. As I was preparing the sermon, I was thinking about our youngest, uh, Ezekiel. He's, he'll be three in a couple weeks, but around Christmas time, he, he was two, two and a half. And um, for, for some reason, I, I don't know why, you know, parents don't always think things through sometimes. And so we bought glass ornaments for our Christmas tree um, with a two-year-old. Not smart. Uh, if you're expecting or you have a two-year-old, please don't buy glass ornaments. It's just a miserable time. Um, and so we're teaching him around Christmas to, to not touch the tree because the ornaments will fall and break. And so, you know, he's trying to touch it. We would stop him, say, don't touch the tree, don't touch the tree. Uh, we would grab his hands, trying to communicate, these, these don't touch this, stay back. Uh, and so I'd walk away, let him stay in the living room, and I'm kind of keeping an eye on him to see what he does next. And you can, see he, you can see his wheels turning. He's contemplating, okay, these don't touch that. Okay, I'm, okay I get it. Um, so I see him put his hands in his pocket, and he starts slowly making his way to the tree, just slowly. But keeping an eye on me, like, what is he going to do? And he gets to the tree and slowly takes his hands out, and I'm thinking, oh, here we go. All right, I'm going to have to do this again. But he doesn't touch it. He, like, kind of holds his hands out like he knows these don't go there. And as he's watching me, and we affectionately call Ezekiel our Sour Patch Kid for obvious reasons, sour one minute, sweet the next. But looking at me with his hands out, he just begins to start rubbing his stomach on the tree. <laughs> As if to communicate to me, I've done exactly what you said. These did not touch that. This did. So I'm getting my way. And as comical as it is, that's how we treat God sometimes. God, I, 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 I didn't do this. God, your word doesn't explicitly say I can't do that. God, I, I know you, you tell me I should do this, but like that, that's kind of more of a recommendation, right? You see, obedience is a life that naturally lives out the expectations of the one who is in charge. Who naturally lives out the expectations of a life that's pleasing to the one in charge. See, Ezekiel shouldn't have touched the tree with his stomach because he should have known that's not pleasing to dad who is in charge. You see, your obedience does not control God's love. God's love controls your obedience. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, so that... who. Those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake he, was, he died and was raised. To keep yourselves in the love of God is to fight to see that the love of God is what is controlling you in your everyday life. It's to hold firm to the promises and the warnings that God graciously gives you in his word. It's, a, it's a, a life that holds clinging to those promises and warnings, trying to direct your life in a way that is obedient to what God has said in principle in his word. It helps you understand and interpret the circumstances in which you find yourself. Those, those situations and those moments where you begin to doubt, does God really love me? It's clinging to the promises of God saying, I know he loves me because of this. Because of the gospel. It doesn't matter what my circumstances and my situations are telling me and what I'm feeling. 
what I know to be true is that Christ died and was risen from the grave. That's what I know to be true. That's what I cling to. That's how I know God loves me. Not because of this moment in which I find myself. Keep yourselves in the love of God. But naturally we ask, well, how do I do that? That's great that you're telling me to do it, but how do I do it? Building yourselves or building one another up in your most holy faith. That's what the text says. Faith here being the gospel and all of its implications in our lives. And what makes it holy is the fact that it is faith that comes from the one and only holy God. Coming from the holy God makes it a holy faith. It's not because you are holy that your faith is holy. It's because the one in whom your faith is in is holy. That's what makes it holy. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the base upon which everything else is built. He is the core of your faith. He is where the holiness is found. It should be our desire to fill our hearts and our minds with knowledge and understanding of the word of God. To strengthen ourselves and to strengthen one another to press on and make it to the end. This is is discipleship 101. As members of one another, we seek to build each other up in our most holy faith. We're called to teach one another. We're to seek to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, being patient with them all. We want to exhort one another so long as it's called today so that none of us would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We encourage one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We stir one another up to love and good works. And we do all these things so that we can build one another up in our most holy faith. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're not growing in your own knowledge and understanding of God's word, you won't be successful in helping your brothers and sisters in Christ do it. Are you seeking to grow? Are you desiring to know God more? A Christian should never be content with where they are in their spiritual walk. No Christian should ever say, I'm in a pretty good spot right now. I'm, I'm good. This is, I've kind of maxed out my, my discipleship. All Christians should have a never-ending hunger and desire and thirst to know God more. There's always a thought of, I want more, God. As you grow in your understanding of God and his ways, you become more aware of your own unholiness, which leads to a deeper appreciation for the love of God, a deeper appreciation for God's love, for his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his justice, his glory, his majesty, his dominion, his authority. And it would only make sense that you would want more of all those things. It's a never-ending cycle in the life of a Christian. Saints, if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, doesn't it only make sense that you would want to continue tasting and seeing? You can't keep in the love of God if you don't seek to grow in the love of God. But while we build, the text says we pray. Praying in the Holy Spirit. But what does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? Well, Jude is not alone in this charge. Paul actually encourages the very same thing in Ephesians 6. He says, praying at all times in the Spirit. When you pray in the Spirit, you pray recognizing your dependence upon God as you pray for yourself and others. 
When you pray in the spirit, you pray aware of your own lack of holiness in comparison to the most high God. You pray understanding that the weight of your sin and your need to confess it to your father is of utmost importance. Praying in the spirit means you pray resting in the understanding that you don't understand it all. And that your prayers are ones that echo the agenda of God and not your own agenda. Praying in the spirit is when we pray in all humility, recognizing that we only have the privilege to speak speak to God because of his love towards us. So keep yourselves in the love of God by building yourselves up, building each other up in the most holy faith. Praying in the spirit. And as you do this, you wait. You wait. As you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Part of keeping in the love of God is our living in the realization that this is not our home. This is not where we will end up in the long run. We don't put our hope and our ultimate enjoyment in this life because we are longing for the mercy of Jesus Christ to be fulfilled and fully realized when he returns. And we need to remind each other of these truths daily. We need to cast a vision for each other, to cast our eyes towards the return of Christ and all of the promises of God that will be fulfilled in Christ at that time. It's looking at a brother and sister in sin and saying, stop. Jesus is so much more than that. He died for that. It's to encourage the downcast, downcast Christian and say, don't put your hope in this life. It's so much better when Jesus comes back. Look to that day. Don't look to this moment you find yourself in. Look to that day. And that will give you the strength to make it through this one. It will remind you of the love of God. Our text is clear. We need each other in this work. It's it's our responsibility. And it's clear because there will be some in our churches who are affected by these threats. There are some in our churches who will be affected by the threats trying to pull us away from the love of God. Look at verses 22 and 23. Have mercy to the, on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. What these verses are exposing for us is that we will need discernment to care for our brothers and sisters when they are affected by these threats that are creeping into our lives seeking to pull us away from the love of God. We can't and we shouldn't handle every situation the exact same. Though every situation should be and requires different approaches, they all must be marked by mercy. We just sang about it. His mercy is more. That's what should influence how we care for those in our congregations. Some in the church that Jude is writing to had begun to have doubts about the faith because of what those who had crept in were saying to the congregation. That's you this morning. If you have doubts, let me just tell you, this is one of the safest places you can be. Because look at what Jude tells the church. What does he say in response to those who are having doubts? Rebuke them. 
ridicule them for being weak, quietly speak behind their backs because, I mean, how could they have that thought and that belief? That's not what Jude tells the church. The Jude, Jude tells the church, have mercy on them. Have mercy on those who doubt. If you have doubts this morning, I'm not a member of this church, although I was a few years ago, or I don't know how long ago, but it's been some time, but I was a member here. But I also know this church well enough that if you have doubts, they are so glad you are here. And they are happy to walk through those with you. They would love to do that. When we face circumstances and situations in our lives where doubt begins to creep in because we wonder, does God love me? Is God in control? Does God know what's happening? Brothers and sisters come alongside you and say, let me, let me remind you. Let me, let me walk through this with you. Let me tell you who Jesus is. Let me remind you of the truth of the gospel. Let me, let me remind you where your hope should be. We should be comfortable asking questions in the church when we begin to have doubts. But it's also clear that there's going to be others that we're going to have to snatch out of the fire. There will be those who are beginning to drift away. These are people who, it's possible, are no longer spending time in the word. They're becoming more sporadic in gathering with the saints on Sunday morning. They appear to be more comfortable gossiping than they are praying. Maybe they're beginning to attempt to distance themselves from other Christians. Maybe they're not speaking or listening to any brothers and sisters in Christ anymore. In cases like these, we should never assume somebody else will deal with it. That's the elders' jobs. They'll, They'll take care of it. They'll reach out. They'll make sure they're okay. We are not called to quietly sit back and watch somebody shipwreck their faith. We don't look on with an attitude of indifference. Listen to what James, the brother of Jude, says in James verse, or chapter 5. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and brings someone back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. That is a beautiful promise. We should recognize the urgency of care needed, and we should do whatever we need to to keep them in the love of God. But notice the difference between this individual and the one who doubts. It's not a sin to doubt. Every one of us will doubt at some point. If you say you've never doubted or you never will, now you've sinned. So now we can deal with that issue. But doubting in and of itself is not a sin. So mercy in that case is inviting the questions with kindness and gentleness and patience, seeking to build up this brother and sister in the most holy faith. But the saint who's beginning to drift, there's more more of an urgency there because now we are dealing with a sin. That's where the snatching language comes in. You've got to snatch them out of the fire because they're beginning to drift. But mercy is still evident because we're seeking to snatch them. We want to snatch them out of the flames of judgment. Our act of snatching is an act of God's mercy on this believer's life. But finally, there's going to be others we need to show mercy to because of a different situation. 
to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. The imagery Jude is using here is a reference to the Old Testament holiness code or the, the holiness law that if somebody was considered unclean, they had a disease or something, you weren't even to touch their clothing because you might become unclean. Jude is saying there will be some who appear to have disregarded and forsaken the love of God and they're in full pursuit of their sin. Our language today, this, this might be someone who we would understand has entered formal church discipline. In these cases, we must exercise care and caution. But those among us like this, who are under formal church discipline, they themselves are not exempt from mercy. Mercy doesn't mean we ignore their sin or their practice of it. No, mercy actually means we call out the sin and we seek to help them fight to put that sin to death. But mercy is the driving force behind our engagement with them. Restoration is the goal. We recognize that it's a rescue mission but we do so with fear. Not fear of the person, but fear of the judgment that comes with abandoning the love of God. Did you notice that as we wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are to show mercy to the people of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you merciful? Is that what would characterize you as an individual? Is that what would characterize you as a church? We need to remember that apart from the mercy of God, any one of us can find ourselves in any of these categories. Doubting, drifting, disciplined. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. In Jesus, we have received God's mercy and it should be our prayer that we would never withhold that same mercy from someone else. Keep yourselves in the love of God. But Jude, being a thoughtful preacher, doesn't let pride creep in. He knows he's writing to a church full of sinners. And so though he tells the church, keep in the love of God, he also makes very clear, you won't be the reason you make it to the end, though. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Why? Because God's love is going to keep you. Our second point this morning, God's love keeps you. Look at verse 24. Now to him, to God, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. I'm not going to pretend like this isn't confusing. What do you mean keep yourselves, but then also saying, no, God's going to be the one keeping. Hang with me for a minute. God keeping you is his follow-up to him calling you. We get this from verse 1 of Jude. Jude, writing to this church, opens his letter by saying, to those who are called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Notice this, God loves them, so he calls them, and he keeps them for Jesus. The love of God called you to himself. We heard this in Ethan's testimony earlier. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2. God, our Father, who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So there's the calling language again. 
The love of God that called you and marks you as one of those who is loved by God is the same love that will keep you to the end. This is what Paul writes to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 1. He says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the, at, at the return of Jesus Christ. But how does God keep us? By the very means we just talked about in verses 20 to 23. God, in his love, uses ordinary means of grace in our lives to keep us from stumbling, to prevent us from falling, to bring us to the end of the race. To use a rough analogy, my, my, our middle, our oldest son, Hosea, turned five a couple months ago. But last year we were teaching him how to do the monkey bars, the exciting life of a parent on the playground, monkey bars, right? And frustrating at the same time. But in God's grace, it, it worked out for this right here. Um, I'm teaching him how to use the monkey bars. And so I pick him up and I put him on that first bar. And I say, okay, Hosea, I need you to look at that last bar. And I need you to keep your eyes on that last bar. Um, I know it's high. I know that you're concerned you're going to fall. But I, what I need you to do is look at that last bar. And as you get there, I need you to just put one, one arm out, grab the next bar, swing your body grab the next bar, swing your body, grab the next bar. And he said, Dad, I, I'm, I'm scared. It's high. I can't do it. And I said, I'm holding you. I'm, I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to let you go, Zay. But I need you to gre- reach out and grab the next bar. Don't look down. Don't worry about how high it is. I'm holding you. I just need you to focus on that last bar. And so we start going, and about a third of the way there, he's excited. Dad, I'm doing it. I don't say, no, you're not. I'm the one doing it, but keep going. My arms are getting tired. No, I say, yeah, you're doing it. You're doing it. You're putting your arm out there. You're swinging your body. You're doing it. About two-thirds of the way, he slips, and he's holding on by just a couple fingers, but I have him. So he didn't really fall. He just kind of struggled. And he said, Dad, Dad, I'm done. I want to go do the slide. It's more fun. He's distracted. And I said, I'm happy to go with you to do the slide in a minute, but we're going to finish this. The slide may be fun, but, but you need to finish this. Look at that last bar. Now grab the next one. And so he grabs the next one. He swings and he grabs the next. And we made it to the end. And he got down and he was the most excited I had ever seen him. And he said, Dad, I, I did it. I finished it. I made it to the end. And I said, yeah, you did. You made it to the end. And he said, and I didn't fall. I said, nope, you didn't. I said, I will never let you fall. He said, let's do it again. Every time he reached out and grabbed the next bar is because he knew I was not going to let him go. And that's what God's telling you. Look to that last bar and reach your hand out and grab the next one. Don't worry about how high up you think you are. Don't worry about slipping. I'm not going to let you fall. I'm not letting you go. Don't be distracted by the slide. Look to the last bar and grab the next bar, and you will make it. I will make sure you make it. Keep yourselves in the love of God because God's love will keep you. We need to fight to keep ourselves and to keep each other in the love of God, knowing that truth. Knowing that God's love will keep those whom he's truly called to himself to the end. Recognizing that we are the means by which God is going to do that in some people's lives. As you fight for one another to remain in the love of God, you are actually the means of God's love in their life. 
And that is a privilege. The holy faith that you claim comes from God's love. Any desire you have to build yourselves up in the most holy faith is owed solely to God's love, putting that desire in you in the first place. Every time you pray in the spirit, you do so because the love of God in your life. All the promises you long for and anticipate as you wait for the mercy of your Lord Jesus Christ to be realized at his second coming are because of God's love. They're given out of God's love. And the fact that you keep your eyes and your heart on the goal of those promises and not turn to the distractions of the slide or the swings is because of the love of God that is at work in your life. God's love is keeping you when your soul is downcast and you read of his faithfulness and you find hope and joy. God's love is keeping you when another saint calls you out in your sin and you follow in repentance instead of rejecting it. God's love is keeping you when you read about what God despises and you begin to despise it too. God's love is keeping you as your love for God grows. What God has instructed us to do to keep ourselves in his love are also the means by which his love keeps us. It's two sides of the same coin. Now, does he protect us in so many other ways? Absolutely. This list isn't exhaustive, but it's nothing less than what Judah's listed here. It's God's love that will keep you from stumbling. It's God's love that will present you blameless before the presence of his glory. Family, how sweet is it to know that as difficult as it may be at times to fight to keep yourself and others in the love of God, that it's worth it every step of the way. Family, be encouraged to read that God will present you blameless with great joy. We tend to overlook that. It's not like God's going to present you before himself at the end of time begrudgingly. Oh, man, I really didn't think you were going to make it. Even this one was hard on me. No. He presents you before himself and says, you did it. This is a joy for me to present you here. This should stir in us praise. This should cause us to want to exalt this God. And who is this God? Who is this God that would take rebellious sinners, call them to himself, and invites them to keep in his love, and ensures that they will be kept in his love? And then promises to present them blameless on the last day with great joy. Who is this God? It's the most glorious God. Full of majesty. Full of greatness. The only one with complete rule and power over all. Praise this God. Park Hills, this is your God. It's to this God, the one and only God, your Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who is to have glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. Let's pray.
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.